Well, good morning, everybody. I know you were asked if anybody actually went to see the fireworks last night, but I didn't see anybody actually acknowledge that they did. I put up my hand, and people are laughing, okay? Anyways, um, it was a late night. There was a lot of people there, but it was really good. Um, so we have been working our way through this series on small books in the Bible. I think it's called Small Books, Big Messages, Small Books with Big Messages, or something like that. And we um, have been looking at these small books that we find in the New Testament right at the tail end of it, things that we don't actually often spend a whole lot of time looking at, reading. We just kind of move on because they weren't written by Paul. Um, That was a joke. Uh, Anyways, this morning... Um, I have the privilege of sharing with you out of what is actually the shortest book in the entire Bible, the book of 3 John. Um, In the original Greek, there is about 219 words in this entire book. So it's going to be real fast, this sermon. Um, No, this morning, as we unpack this short little book, I think that we're going to see something in here that although written 2,000 years ago to somebody that we, it was a letter to one person and and we don't know anything about the person that it was written to apart from what is found in here, um, that in this little book, in this little letter here, the Apostle John is going to speak directly to something that every single one of us in our own way deals with on a daily basis, every single day. And that is the question of what is the most important thing in your life. If you and I, if we spend some time and we self-examine, what do we find at the center of our lives? What does our life revolve around? Because that center is the most important thing. It affects what we believe, it affects what we say, and it affects how we live, what we do. And so it affects every single part of our life. So with that, let's open our Bibles, if you have them, uh, to 3 John. If you don't, if you got a device, look it up on there, 3 John. And let's jump in and meet the recipient of this letter. He's a guy named Gaius and find out what John thinks about Gaius. So we're going to start reading 3 John uh, and we're going to read verses, I almost said chapter there. There's no chapters in this. It's too short. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 6 to start with here. The elder. To my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some of the brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you're faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, even though they're strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way way in a manner worthy of God." First thing in here that we notice, pretty self-evident, is that John is friends with Gaius. In the first six verses, he calls Gaius his dear friend three times. And it kind of leads us to believe um, that 
John and him have a close relationship, but, but even more than that, John says that he is one of John's children in verse 4, which also leads us to the understanding that John may have actually been the one who led Gaius into a relationship with Jesus, who led Jesus to, to, to Christ. And so, as the apostle writes this very personal letter to his friend, he has nothing but good to say about Gaius. Nothing but good to say. Do you notice that? He says, Gaius, your life is a testimony to, the, to, to Jesus. John commends Gaius for being faithful uh, to the truth. In the context here, it says, um, it great, uh, sorry, where am I? There it is. Um, tell me, in verse 3, it says, it gives me great joy to have some of the brothers come and tell me about your faithfulness to the truth. He says, you are absolutely faithful to the truth. You're not faithful to the truth of mathematics that two plus two equals four, or the faithful to the truth that the sun is going to come up every single morning. What John is commending Gaius for here is being faithful to the truth, which is the truth of the gospel or the good news of Jesus. The story that Jesus came God, in the form of Jesus, came to earth, lived as a human being, was crucified um, and died for our sins and rose again on the third day. And John is saying, you are sticking with that truth. You're doing a great job at continuing to believe that and have relationship with our Heavenly Father. And not only that, he says, Gaius, you also walk in that truth. That's really critical because it's pretty easy to remember and to know things, right? To organize knowledge and to hold on to knowledge and to be like, I know the truth. I can unpack this. I can explain this. But living that out is a different thing. Living is a bit more challenging. It's where, you know, truth and life intersect. And, and John says, Gaius, you walk in that truth. You understand this. You not only believe correctly, you apply that belief to your life. John knows that this is really important. He knows that there's lots of people around who profess to follow Jesus, but don't do a good job of following. And so John is saying, Gaius, he's commending Gaius, he's encouraging him, he's saying, the integration of truth and living it out brings me great joy. In fact, John says, it is my greatest joy. And then if we back up a little bit, he said, okay, guys, you're this guy who understands truth, who lives it out, who brings me great joy in how you're doing that. But John has this prayer for Gaius in verse two. And its prayer is that Gaius's health and welfare would be as good as his spiritual walk. Let's just read verse two for a second. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. So I pray that you'll enjoy good health and that everything would go well with you in the same way that your soul is good. Some people have taken this passage and they said, well, if that means what, there's a connection there between our walk with God or how our soul is doing and how our physical well-being or how much material wealth or whatever it is. And so they've connected those two ideas and put them together and said, 
if um, you have any problems in your health or if you have any problems, if you're, you know, in your wealth area, that there must be a soul problem. That's not what John is teaching here, I don't think. I think John is simply praying a prayer and, and actually the phrasing of this in the Greek actually aligns with quite um, a, a, what would be a common phrase used in, among letters to friends like, hey, I hope that you're doing really well, my friend. You know, that sort of phrasing. But, but, the, but John understands that our health and our prosperity are not necessarily connected to how our spiritual walk is going. But he's saying, I would pray that your health and prosperity is going well, as well as your spiritual walk. See, John would never have connected the, the idea and meaning it, it, it has to be there, or the, the health and welfare idea, because John didn't live that. He didn't know that. That wasn't his reality. Um, when John wrote this, he was most likely imprisoned on the island of Patmos, uh, because of his faithfulness to the gospel. He, when John wrote this, uh, his own brother James had been the very first Christian who was ever martyred for their faith, ever killed for their faith. Um, when John wrote this, he would have written it in light of the fact that he spent three years walking side by side with Jesus. I witnessed to how Jesus lived and how people treated Jesus and what Jesus taught about how Jesus' followers would have difficult times and people would oppose them. There is no connection like that, between this idea that if your soul is doing well, you do well in your physical well-being. And your physical well-being is a reflection of your soul. John is simply saying, hey, this is what I want for you. I see that your soul is doing awesome. I pray that the rest of your life would be doing the same thing. I pray for God's blessing upon you. Now, the reason why I spend so much time there or touched on that like that is because the first thing that, that out of this really that I'd like to ask ourselves, like us to ask ourselves is if I was blessed, ask yourself that. So if you were blessed, if I was blessed physically and materially in measure with my spiritual maturity, how well would I actually be doing? That's a really good kind of question to ask ourselves. If my physical well-being or my material well-being matched my spiritual well-being, would I be healthy? Would I be sick? John could write this to Gaius these things and know this about Gaius and pray this for Gaius, not because he had seen it, but because other people had seen it and were reporting back to him. Gaius had gained a reputation for being faithful to the truth, for living out of this truth and for loving other people. You see, in this story, in the background to what's going on here, there's been missionaries coming and going. In um, verse 7, it's talking about the people that have 
met with Gaius and he has sent them on their way or John's encouraging them to send them on their way in a worthy manner of God. And it says, it was for the sake of the name that these people went out. These, there were these people going out and they were going out and traveling around and staying in churches and ministering in the community around the church as missionaries. And, and Gaius has gained a reputation with these people that are doing this for being somebody who holds on to the truth, who lives out of the truth, and who loves people well. He'd been gaining a reputation for somebody who could be relied upon to care and support others. And John, he's writing and he's saying, hey, I want to encourage you, Gaius, to continue to do this. Let's read verses um, 7 and 8. It was, for their, it was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. John is in fact saying here that when we provide, he's a guy, when you provide for those that are vocationally engaged in furthering the kingdom of God, they have gone out, they have left their um, living and households and everything behind to go out to further the kingdom for the sake of the name, when we are um, engaged in providing for those who are vocationally furthering the kingdom of God, John writes that we then work together for the truth. When we provide for, when we care for, we become partners with those who have gone out and we share in their missionary. And Gaius is doing that and, and John is writing to encourage him. He's like, you are doing this and this is good work. I encourage you to continue doing this because there's a fly in this ointment here. There's a problem that John now turns to address in verses 9 through 10. He says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephus, that's what we're calling him now, um, Diotrephus, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. So there's this guy in the church, die of something or other, who is working actually against John and against these missionaries that, that Gaius has been supporting. So John has been like, hey, Gaius, you're doing great. You hold on to the truth. You know the truth. You live out of the truth. You love well. That is evidenced by the way you are treating these missionaries who you are partnering in ministry with by your treatment of them. This is all wonderful things, but there's somebody who is working against this. And so John says, I've tried to deal with him. I wrote to the church. But the church, because of diaphragm, won't have anything to do with what I wrote to them. In fact, this guy is gossiping about me and with the intent of undermining my ministry and my leadership, and he's refusing to provide or support for these missionaries. And in addition to this, Gaius, John writes, in addition to this, this guy is using his position in the church to punish those 
who would support the missionaries, those who have gone out to further the gospel and the kingdom. Diotrephus appears to have been a leader within the church. We're not giving any information about him elsewhere, anywhere in the Bible. This is the only place in the Bible we hear about this guy. But the fact that he could ignore John's letter and get the church to go along with it, the fact that he could make the church um, out people, um, excommunicate them, kick them out of fellowship, if they were supporting these missionaries, must have meant that this guy had a leadership role within the church. What's really interesting about this is that John never charges him with being a heretic. He never charges him with saying that, that he doesn't know the truth. Because if, if he had been a heretic, if this guy had been teaching things that were really out of line with what the gospel was, he would have dealt with him differently. If you um, look back in 2 John, um, there is a clear indication to how the, the church is supposed to deal with those who are teaching heresy. And John writes to the, to the church in 2 John, he says, you need to get them out. They need to be out. But he doesn't say that about this guy. He says what his problem is, it's not truth. His problem is that he loves to be first. His problem is his personal ambition. His problem is the very first sin that was ever committed. And you go, what does that have to do with eating a piece of fruit? It doesn't. The very first sin that was ever committed was not committed by a human. The very first sin that was ever committed was committed by Satan. And in the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, there is a section in there on the fall of Satan. And in verse 14 of chapter 14, it says this, that he thought he would make himself like the most high. Satan was not satisfied with his position and he wanted to be first. And that is Diotrephus's sin, is that he wants to be first. He loves to be first. This is in contrast with the example of Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus, the one who could consider himself as first of any person that has ever lived, Jesus could say, I am first. Jesus, Paul writes, was humble. And Paul says, we should have the same attitude as Jesus. Diotrephus is loving to be first meant that everybody around him needed to come second. This shows up in how he kicks people out of the church. If you disagree with me, out you go. I am unwilling to live in any tension whatsoever. I need to be first. I will not hold what you think as an equal value as what I think. It's not theology we're talking about here. It's just an application thing. And he's like, I am unwilling to do this. Out you go. 
If you disagree with me, you must be gotten rid of. This is really interesting here because John is not dealing with Diotrephus in the same way that Diotrephus is dealing with everybody else. Do you notice that? John isn't showing up there and saying, he needs to go. He's saying, he's in error. This needs to be corrected. But he's not saying, we need to get rid of this guy. John's trying to deal with the problem. He sees this sin and he's trying to deal with it. He wants to correct it. He's not trying to kick him out. Gaius's choices, we go back to Gaius, tale of two people here right now. Gaius's choices are leading to a very different outcome, right? Gaius is choosing to love other people, to hold on to the truth, to live out of the truth. And in doing that, he's creating fellowship. He is building relationships with missionaries. He's creating fellowship and he's supporting ministry. He's furthering the kingdom of God. Diotrephus is choosing to love himself. And in doing this, he is creating disunity and division, which hinders ministry. Then in verse 11, we get verse 11, we get to the very core, what I think is the very core of this little letter here. In it, John writes, Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. This is John's kind of test of faith. He says it here. He says it a few times in 1 John. He has this little bit of a test of faith. He says, faith will show up in how you live. Faith will show up in, in how you live. Anyone who does good is from God. Faith shows up in how you live. Oh, I lost my page. And John says, Gaius, you're going to look at the world around you and you're going to look for examples of people to follow. And that's entirely natural. Don't follow the example of Diotrephus because um, what he's doing is not leading to good outcomes. So he's saying, instead, imitate what is good, not what is evil. And then he gives an example um, of a guy named Demetrius. But before we get there, I have a question to ask us. Just, just pause for a moment and ask yourself this, based upon what we've kind of unpacked here in this passage, why would John have to tell or ask Gaius or tell Gaius this? Why would he have to encourage Gaius to not follow the example of Diotrephus? Like, is this not self-evident? Does that, do, do you see where I'm going there? Like, wh why, why would John have to say, hey, hey, don't do this. Don't go down this path. Maintain the path you're going on. Do not go down the path of, be, path of being divisive, of trying to put yourself first. I think there's two reasons why John does this. The first one is pretty simple. He doesn't want Gaius to give in to pressure. So Gaius, Gaius and this diatrophus are in the same church or churches right nearby one another. 
And um, I don't know, we don't know what their relative roles are within the church and where their leadership responsibilities lie. We believe that there probably are both leaders within the church. But, but, um, but there would have been pressure on Gaius, right? Like, will you follow along this path that Diotrephus is leading? Gaius, will you go down there? Will you stop um, uh, supporting these missionaries? Because the pressure is like, if you don't, you're going to get kicked out of the church. So that's fairly self-evident. So John's like, no, you need to stay the path here. You need to do what is good and what is, what is right. And that's fairly self-evident. But I think there's a second reason why John is writing this to him, why he's asking this question, why he's challenging um, Gaius in this way. And it's because by all outward appearances, Diotrephus is, is successful. Think about that for a moment. People are clearly following him. If he can like ignore a letter from John, the apostle John, if he can ignore it and get away with it and have a church do it, people are obviously willing to go along with him. If he can have people removed from the fellowship, that, that we will no longer accept them into our church because of what they are doing, clearly people are willing to follow him. His leadership whether for good or for bad, but his leadership was effective. He was successful. He was getting what he wanted and how, and things were going how he thought they should go. And John is saying, Gaius, be very, very careful here because just because you're getting the outcome you want doesn't mean you're doing the right thing. Be very careful here. Continue to live out of the truth that you know. And so John gives Gaius this one final example, this guy named Demetrius in verse 12. And he says, Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. He says, Gaius, if you're going to look for an example of who to follow, here's somebody that you can follow. Because everybody thinks Demetrius is a good guy. Not only does everybody think he does, I think he does. Not only do I think he is a good guy, but even that the truth itself testifies to him being a good guy. That means his life... And what God's expectations, God's standards, Jesus' teachings are, his life and all of those things line up. The truth itself bears evidence that he is a good example, somebody worth following. This little letter, 3 John here, is all about centers. Or rather, who people choose to center their life on. Gaius's life, John says, your life is centered on the truth. You have built it on that and there is evidence of it. Don't stray away from that center. Diotrephus's life is centered on, well, himself. John is contrasting the two. He's saying, Gaius, this is who you have been. This is who you could become. 
hold on to your center, the center around the truth, centered around who God is and what he calls you to. And so the question that this letter puts to us is that whom are we going to center our lives on? Should we imitate the world and put ourselves at the center? Or do we follow the example of Gaius and Demetrius and the faithful saints who have gone before us and put God at the center? Because our center is our most important thing. And what we choose to put there will affect what we believe, what we say, and how we live. It affects everything, every single part of our lives. Not only that, and this is, I think, why John really has to emphasize this to Gaius, our centers are slippery. Gaius is doing great. John's still warning him and saying, keep your eyes on a good example. Follow a good example. Do not go astray. We're the same. We can be doing great and then we can like slide off into something else, putting something else, putting what we want at the center, what other people think about us at the center, instead of putting God at the center. This is something that we need to go back to day by day. It's who am I going to put at the center of my life? Will it be God or will it be myself? We're going to um, wrap up here now. And that being said, just before I um, say the benediction over everybody here and let us all go, if you have something you'd like to pray about, somebody you want to talk to about things, um, there's going to be one of the church leaders will be hanging around up here somewhere. It's probably going to be Brian Emery. Okay. All right, Emery's going to be up here. Um, Emery's going to be up here. If you'd like to pray with him, um, you can do that. Um, but just in conclusion here as I wrap this up, this seems like a lot of work. Trying to hang on to your center all the time, being responsible for it, that's a lot of work. Let me read to you from the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter five, right at the end as a benediction here, because I think this puts the work into perspective. In first Thessalonians chapter five, starting in verse 23, it says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you. That's make you holy, make you into who he wants you to be. May he sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. May every aspect of your whole life be kept blameless. This is it. This is the key thing. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. We don't do this on our own. When we follow Jesus, God gives us the Holy Spirit. And he is at work in your life and in my life. And in these things, 
this challenge of who are we going to put at the center? This is an opportunity to lean in and say, God, will you give me the ability? Will you work in me so that I can put you at the center? You don't have to do this alone. God is here. He wants to do it with you. He wants to step into your life and transform you so that you can put him at the very center and live out of that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for being able to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you because you are worthy of all of our praise, of all of our worship. You are worthy of all the glory. God, we thank you for your work in our lives. We thank you for the work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection so that we can come into relationship with you, that which we remembered at communion. We thank you for always being with us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit being at work in our lives. And we thank you for good examples of Christians who have gone before us, guys like Gaius, who knew the truth, not only knew the truth, lived out of it, and loved well. God, may you give us, may you remind us, may you encourage us to model our lives on the example, these good examples who have gone before us. May we center ourselves on you. May you make that possible in our lives this morning for the rest of this week. And we pray that you would go with us from this place now. Fill us with your spirit. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.